today's episode is going to be really, really dope. I'm sitting with a friend that I've known for some time. When you think about the word of entertainment, media, music, streetwear, fashion, never really get to look behind the scenes at who really makes that happen. Ruta is one of those guys. Coming from the city of Rio all the way in Brazil to living in Paris to California to living in New York. He's pretty much done it all and seen it all. Today, we'll talk about how he got from the stoop to where he is today. Live from the stoop podcast with me, Robbie Digital. Sit back, relax. Let's go. Welcome to Live from the Stoop podcast with me, Robbie Digital. It's raining outside, um, but not not too bad, though. We, we did have a pretty big storm last week, but nevertheless, the city moves at the pace that it does, even throughout the weather. I'm sitting with a really, really great, great friend of mine, um, world-traveled, very world-renowned. I think a lot of times in this creative space and in media and culture, we have a lot of large moments, but it's rare that we get to speak to people who are behind the scenes of those moments, the people who really put in the groundwork to see the final product that is presented in most times to, to cons- consumers and customers alike. Um, great friend by the name of Ruda. Ruda, yeah. welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Hey, y'all. Um, it's great to be here. Um, excited to this. <laughs> I, it's funny you say there are like behind the scenes um, people are like, because to your point, it's not often that we get to speak, right? We, 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 we got to make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily to, to talk about our shit, to talk about you know, how doing things or whatever yeah so that's cool and i think that's that's kind of one of the things that i like that in uh in today's culture everyone is focused on the behind the scenes now no one really like in the 90s we grew up it was kind of like everything was super right so like super model super cars super music like super fashion so everything was presented to us and curated at a final product stage it was it was rare that we knew what the behind the scenes was that it was there in print like you would see it in a Vogue magazine you would see it in an Ebony or a Jet right. or a Vibe but you really had to look for those details even more so like even in music like now some of the producers are way more in front opposed to the artists because now we look at the creative process. More often than the final product. Maybe, 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 <clears throat> maybe hip hop did that, right? Maybe I don't know. With managers and promoters and mm-hmm. producers, like with the Steve Stouts and the Buff Daddies and Russell Simmons, and, and, and maybe try to think because I'm trying to think. You know me, right? Like trying to think from a Brazilian culture perspective, from a Caribbean culture perspective, whatever. Like trying to think. Behind the scenes, people they're putting themselves out there. I think hip hop really did that. Yeah, uh, I I agree. I think um, hip hop music is probably, as of right now, probably one of the biggest, you know, world renowned genres. But we see so many different elements from it now. Um, growing up, I think it was one thing when we saw even with Puff, like you mentioned, Puff. Puff was uh, someone that we saw. What he presented, but we didn't know what a day to day looked like for him. Right, that's right. We didn't know the Kim Asarios, who was an editor, or we didn't know 
um, the designers or the stylists that sure. were behind a lot of That's those right. looks. Now but it was a step, right? It was a step. Yeah. Like first, like maybe again, like cats like Steve Stout, right? Like putting themselves or Russell Simmons. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and I think it was a step from you say from the super celebrities to cats position themselves as super managers, super producers, or whatever. Mm-hmm. To now, to your point, you're getting to know besides them also the designers, the other managers. The stage designers. Yeah, the creative the architects. The architects, the yeah. stage designs, Which all of those things. Is ama- yeah. It's amazing now. Yeah. yeah because uh-huh. now it, it makes it more tangible. I think sometimes we give kids this dream of like, you, you, you want to be in this position because that's what you see. Right. You don't see everything else that's behind that. Nothing else is glamorized, right? So yeah. I, I was interviewing this girl for this... Um, Gig I, I just did with Arsenal FC from, from London, the football club from London. Mm-hmm. Interviewing this girl in LA. So interviewing fans, right? V- very young fans. And this girl in, I believe, Silmar, California. So, you know, a little suburb out of LA. And asking about content. And she's like, yeah, we all love the players. We love all of the coaches. But she's like, I'm a nurse. I'm studying, study, but she's already a nurse kind of kind. She's like, I want to know the medical department of Arsenal because that's my dream. Can, she's like, if I can join, you know, I can put it together, being a nurse and working for my f- passion, which is my football club, that's my dr- dream in life. But she was like, I don't know nothing of the medical department. Wow. So that was interesting. Right? Like, it's not just the behind the scenes again from the managers. And this girl is like, yo, who is the medical department? Yeah. She's trying to see like some ER reality from <laughs> Arsenal. And I was like, that's dope. That's really dope. Because it's new. Sure, but humanity, it's diverse. Mm-hmm. Not everybody wants to be the rapper. Not everybody wants to be the singer. Not everybody wants to be the model. Yeah. A lot of people, and probably most, are the makeup artist, the designer, the manager, the stage designer, the publicist. The communications, the medical, medical department, medical, yeah, you know. So it's. I think that's dope that we're getting more exposure and talking more about this vast diversity of creativity within industries, mm-hmm. not just the gl- glamorized aspects of it, such as again the artists or the athletes or whatever, which are dope. We all love them. Yeah, we do. But everyone else is also important. I mean, I guess a, a great example is because, you know, I always tie it back to footwear. I think it wasn't until maybe the late 2000s, maybe 2008, 2009, we started looking at someone like Tinker. Like, it was like mm. we knew we knew Jordan as the brand, mm. but it wasn't until the later 2000s where we started looking at the designers of that footwear. It wasn't until maybe later where you can find, like, the designer who created the shiny, the stylist who created the shiny suit era for Bad Boy. Like you are able to find these people now, hmm. and and I think now they get their flowers more so because people know them. It's kind of very new, right? It's a very, it's very nuanced. That's crazy. No, and and, and very new. Like we're talking two thousand nine, bro. I'm from nineteen eighty one. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So for me, that's like. Yesterday, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, wow. Let's actually take it back to to, to the nineteen eighties. 
Um, so you're originally from... I'm from Brazil. I'm from Rio. From Rio. Yeah. And that has to be a whole different kind of like culture experience. How was it like growing up in Rio? Yeah, 100%. Um, <clears throat> people tend to make comparisons, which is fine for me. I don't, I don't mind that. Um, with cities across the world, with big cities, right? Rio is a big city, I think. From, you know, the, the metropolis, we have like probably 8 million people. It's pretty big. Maybe a little smaller than New York. Um, I don't know. Um, but people tend to compare Sao Paulo, which is the biggest city of Brazil, second biggest city in the Americas, to New York. You know, um, you know, I don't. But Rio, I wouldn't compare to big cities. Oh, Rio is LA, New York, Sao Paulo is New York. I wouldn't do that. Um, I think Rio, if anything, is actually. Closer to Kingston in Jamaica or Havana in Cuba or Luanda in Angola. It's like, it's a big city such as those cities, but very insular in, in its own cultures. I would agree. When I look at it, yeah. it gives me more... I, I guess when you see photos of Rio, it gives like this, this cultural history to it like through uh-huh. its architecture through its pictures through the design people, yeah, the, culture, the yeah. people it looks more like I guess it, it gives me if I had to compare it to a city I think because it's rich in culture I would compare it to like Boston like when you go in Boston you can see the architecture in sure, the history sure I, I, I got what you're saying yes yes I've never been to Boston but I think another aspect of Rio, Rio doesn't necessarily fall into the Western mm-hmm. big city perspective. Again, Sao Paulo, even Mexico City, Sao Paulo, LA, New York, Paris, London, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Rio, again, I would say falls more into like Kingston, Atlanta. Yeah. Those are not small cities. No. But... The mindsets, the structure of the cities are very deep-dived into different structural and cultural thinking of society or whatever. And I think Rio falls into that. It's very interesting. So, yeah, growing up there, I'm from, again, 1981. Um, so when I born, Brazil was still under dictatorship. Important to know, financed by the United States. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, people from Kennedy to Reagan. Dem- Democrats and Republicans for us all the same shit. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so born to dictatorship was a huge affect in my family. Um, both my parents, such as you say, the photojournalists. How is it? How was it living um, in a house with parents who essentially were creatives? Yeah, no, that's that's dope, right? Uh, so my, my parents separated really, like, uh, I think I was three years old or whatever. I have flashes, memories of them together, whatever, but not really. Um, but it was dope. So my mom, we, we, we live in an apartment that was kind of like a ground level, and um, in the back of the house, she had a dark room. So often, and to a point, because they're creative, so, you know, artists, they don't have that kind of like, oh, you got to go to law school type of shit. So my mom was like, yo, tomorrow, if you wake up, you'll go to school. But if not, then that's that. Um, but tonight I'm developing film at the dark room. She used to do that after midnight. And I'll be with her in the dark room, developing the films. And that's magical, right? Because basically she'll be talking about what she had photographed that day or the last days or whatever from 
violent shootings between the drug cartels in Rio, to politicians, to soccer, to carnival, whatever. Whatever was happening in the city that became news. And she'll be talking about it, like, oh, yeah, photograph this, that, whatever. And you start pitching that in your head. And you go to the dark room with her and start developing the film and seeing that turn into a photograph. Yeah. For a child, the magic of that, it's incredible, right? It, it could... Because children, I believe children are very magical. Like, children are more artistic than adults, obviously. Clearly, so yeah. So children goes into some crazy mushroom tripping situations yeah, the, in their the head, things, right? The thing, because the, the opportunity at, at as a kid is endless. Anything endless. Seems, anything seems possible. Endless. So I was into that perspective with my mom. With my mom, I didn't go. I barely went out. To photograph with her. Few times I did. We went to 1987. It's a great memory of mine. It's probably the first concert that I remember. So it was a free jazz festival concert that we had in the 80s, all the way to the early 2000s in Brazil. We had everyone from all over the world performing there. It's incredible, huge influence in my life. But that first concert, 1987, was um, Albert King. Super, super classic, iconic blues uh, musician from the United States. Mm-hmm. Later on in life, I was fucking with Public Enemy, and Public Enemy had a huge sample of Albert King um, in the music. You know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, so that concert, I was with my mom. She was photographing the concert. It was pretty dope. Besides other shit, like, basically my mom was being in the dark room. That was, you know, the, the most vivid memory with her, with my father, in the contrary, it wasn't much of a dark room. I don't think even he had a dark room in his apartment. No, he didn't. But often, and he, usually he'll do the late night shifts at the newspaper, and I'll be with him at the newspaper, and sometimes in the car, out in the streets. Now think of it, in the 80s, being in the car, in the streets, photographing a late night, you know photographing models. Enough for a yeah. you know, pretty news. It's mostly crime. So you're, was, you're, you're, you're taking photos of the nightlife. Well, yeah, and again, in the city of Rio, unfortunately, in the 80s, I mean, I think in the late 70s or whatever, I think the United States started this colonial planning of what they call war on drugs and eventually planned Colombia. Yeah. Which is pretty much just a plan to sell more guns to us. Yeah, propaganda and stuff. Shit like yeah, that. in colonial control of Latin America, right? So, Rio got a crazy flood of guns in the 80s, and eventually in the 90s, probably became one of the epicenters of gun smuggling uh, in the world, primarily from the United States. So, the crime was it's been crazy in that city, and my father, being a photojournalist, I was with him, and, you know, he'll go to the favelas and, and, and photograph the whole war zone shit, but you in the car, you've seen it. Like, you're not in the middle of the crossfire, but you've seen it. You're hearing the gunshots, you've seen it. Plus, also, especially living with him, I was living with my mom and with him, like, you know, in, in, in the two households. Um, and the community we live with him, um, it was violence all, all, over, all over. Unfortunately, many friends of mine passed away, whatever. So, he had that. Besides the violence, also growing up there, a lot of football, so a lot of a soccer, lot of, yeah, a lot, lot of like soccer, the, especially him. He photographed a lot of soccer. Fortunately, I got to meet 
all the famous soccer players of Rio in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I was also going to the stadium since I was four years old. That was a huge experience of mine. Um, you know, I mean, huge. The stadium in the 80s and 90s in Rio, super cultural. I, I think to be more inclined to like the fan aspect of it than is actually the game of the athletes. I love the game. I love the players. Mm-hmm. But the cultural aspects of the stadiums in Rio back then with all the music and the chants. It was an event. It was, it was some, more... The, it felt, it felt oh. like the game was probably like the icing on the cake, if anything. It was a ceremony. It was a ceremony, right? It was, it was incredible. Um, so, yeah, those things, right? It was really... And the music, right? I remember vividly the first songs from my mom's house was Overjoyed by Stevie Wonder <laughs> and Paul Marley, um, Get Up, Stand Up. Get Up, Stand Up, yeah. Right, I remember these two songs with my mom. Now, my father had over 3,000 vinyl records. Really? From Mahalia Jackson to Bunny Spear to Linton Quest Johnson to Rasan Roland Kirk, all the f- beautiful Brazilian samba and and and, 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 and all of that, um, you know, to Manu Bango from Africa, whatever. So, so there was a difference, it seems like, like creatively, like with with your mom, you had these images of one way she took photos and her, her interpretation behind the camera. And then you saw through the lens of your dad yeah. and his photos yeah. and the things that he captured. Yeah. So same, same occupation, but two completely different, completely different, completely different feelings. Different. Yeah, my mom was one of the first female photographers in Rio to photograph soccer. She said that she was the second one to go in the stadium. Second female photographer to go in the stadium. The biggest stadium in the world. With, it fitted in crazy games, 200,000 people. So she said the first time she stepped in the stadium, the whole stadium is calling her, slut, slut, slut. Really? Yeah. So my mom was always very conscious of sexes in Latin America and Brazil. Um, so her point of view was very driven by that, like, uh, from a female point of view, from a women's empowerment point of view. Well, my father had the fuck the privilege as a man to be able to get in situations she would be way more difficult for her. So photographing violence, photographing soccer, especially was much easier for him than her. Yeah. Also, she had a conscious as a mother to like being on the front lines photographing violence, if anything happened, I'll be on my own as a, as a baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Without a mother. So <laughs> she had that conscious, right? Well, um, she's also showing you things at that, that time too because you're seeing like these timestamps now like of these moments with both parents, it seems. And right. it also seems like being in two different households, like I love how you described how music was played somewhere in one place and music played at different at your dad's. And I think that's often what happens at times with um, when you, when you kind of live between those two different worlds with having two different parents, often you get this perception of life that's very different. Where like, although probably working with, with your mom in the dark room at night, there was a lot of maternal, natural moments. Yeah. Whereas with your dad shooting in the night, it was kind of like an action film. Like, he was just like, all right, so I'm going with dad, and we're like, it's on some Batman shit. That's, like, a, that's yeah. a great knowledge because, yes, when my mom was very, how do I say that? 
how do I put it into words? It, it was instantly mostly maybe in the house and and more on the thinking of the process. Mm-hmm. When my father was into the action with soccer, with violence, with even photographing models for for Playboy edition covers, mm-hmm. uh, whatever, like you know, um, he did from yes, from models to soccer to violence to politics, whatever. With my mom was mostly in the house. That's right. Interesting aspect too. So within the music in both households, especially my father, music was all over, but especially international music, a lot of like. American music, European, African, Caribbean. But outside, and especially in the neighborhood I was growing up, that my father lived, it's a neighborhood in Central South Rio. And it's a neighborhood that's this crazy mix of mansions, so super rich colonial families of Brazil living there. Middle class uh, families... They are very left-wing and mostly artists. is a very artistic neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But also 19 favelas, which are very impoverished communities. And not just going to like the impoverishment or the um, violence. Besides that, um, often some of those communities are, are former uh, runaways, um, enslaved um, people, settlements. Mm-hmm. So, which entitles of very strong African traditions in the neighborhood. Very strong. So growing up in the neighborhood, besides, again, the music and, and, and the whole artistic things or whatever inside the house, as soon as a kid, and, and, and growing up as a kid in the 80s and in the 90s, you know, it wasn't the internet, you know, it wasn't none of that shit. So uh, we had like four TV channels or whatever. It was being out, never mm-hmm. being at home. And being out... Playing soccer, um, uh, kites, you know, like climbing the trees to get jackfruits to sell it to the tourists, uh, running away when the shootings starts, you know what I mean? But at the same time, like, samba was all over. Cats would, like, just get percussions, and they wouldn't even call themselves musicians because that's so natural, and just playing samba all over. And then at night time, you hear the baile funk sound systems, which is similar to Jamaica with a huge wall of, 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 of boom boxes with a large bass. And you hear that. And along with that, you hear the Afro-religion drum circles coming from the forest. You know what I mean? So I would say the music structure in my mind from what I like in life was formed in my teenage years. Walking the neighborhood to be able to get the bus, to get out of the neighborhood, to go to downtown or to go to other party neighborhoods or whatever and by their walk you hear the large bass coming from the Bali funk sound systems but mixed with the percussion circles of the African religions coming from Saturday night that's 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 incredible like I think for me it was um you know like I grew up in a and uh, with my parents being separated. So, like, with my mom, I got a lot of my R&B music. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of traditional, the Mary J. Blige's, mm-hmm. the, the um, you know, just because she was a young mom. Right. My grandparents, I got a lot of my soul music from. Yeah. You know, like, The Temptations and Freddie Jackson's and Teddy Pendergrass. My dad, he didn't play much music, but because he lived in the South Bronx, this I heard everything in real time. 
as right. hip hop was exactly. happening. This is so it wasn't yeah. even if even if I didn't hear it in the house, <coughs> I remember sitting on the stoop in the first time I heard Rule the World by Nas mm. in Lauren Hill. Sick. Like I remember it when it played on the radio and hearing Funk Flex say it and how big of a deal it was. And and at that time, even not knowing what music was or like I it's that soundtrack. And that, that sounds what it seems like it was for you in your teenage years. Yeah. So, for us, first, in the streets was, again, samba and funk. Funk, our funk, like what people would yeah. call Bali funk. We call funk. I know it's the same word as here. Um, obviously, it has relationships with both genres and, and, and origins. But, yeah, it's a different rhythm. Um, so, Bali funk and samba. That was our thing, right? Um in 1995, I saw the, the Right Thing. It's funny. I saw the, the Right Thing, and I was mesmerized by the film and by Public Enemy um, Fight the Power song. And CDs was something expensive. You know, not everybody had access to it. It was minimum um, music uh, store selling CDs or whatever. So I got up with this friend of mine because I, I knew he had CDs. I was like, yo, do you know about Public Enemy? He's like, yeah. Um, a whole weekend I spent in his house listening to Public Enemy Music and Our Message, which had the Albert King sample, and I was like, damn, it's a memory from 1987. So hip-hop came into that time, right? Like, um, I was living in a, in a block of buildings, again, in, in, you know, with my father, that a lot of the music in Brazil was formed, a lot of the bands and, 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 and singers or whatever came from those buildings. And um, one of the biggest rappers in Brazil... It's from there we grew up together. He's ten years older than I, but you know, like when you're a teenager, you start like hanging, whatever. Mm-hmm. So hip hop was very hip hop was very vivid, but a tradition of real. It's what we call um, and, and and some people mix a, a, an analogy to the native tribes that that firstly were living there that take cultures from other places, mm-hmm. eat it, and regurgitate to something. Something else. From ourselves, right? Yeah. And um, funk happened like that, right? Like it comes it comes from 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 New York, from Miami, from LA in the forms of hip hop, the electro music comes from LA, Miami based obviously from Miami, and eventually freestyle from the Latino communities coming from the East Coast. Mm-hmm. But it got blended with the Afro Brazilian traditions from the southeast of Brazil, you know what I mean, within the Cursion and the chants or whatever, and it becomes body right? So hip hop is the same thing. We're liking hip hop, but to be honest, was a bit of a square to us. Yeah, because the beats, you know, it's four four. Where in Brazil, our music is very syncopated. You know, what I mean, not exactly until the Western traditional four mm-hmm. four uh, perspective. So, out of hip hop, suddenly, I got your shine hat. This Jamaican rapper from. York and to Shine Hat, I got into Jamaican music. Now, my father was listening to reggae, mm-hmm. but you know, reggae like again, Bernie Spear, and yeah, Linton Quest Johnson, and Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, uh, the traditional, the Dennis tra- Brown, yeah. sure, yeah, you know, like Gregory Isaacs, um, Lee, Lee Perry. When I got into dance hall, I was like, wow, that's. What we seen in Bali Funk scene in Rio with the sound systems, with the Bati riders and the cats with the rifles shooting the air with the motorcycles and I'm seeing in Jamaica. 
I was like, wow. So love to hip hop, love, love. Yeah. Love, 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 love. But the dance hall scene spoke to us because, you know what I mean? It was cats with scars in the faces and gold chains. It was, it was, it was pretty much. I think it's just it's the same way. In patois, it was the same kind of evolution of hip hop on, on, on the other side of that. Like, yeah. through, through jazz, soul, funk, and we the, got hip hop as a new bro, thing. It's like the same the way you got dancehall. Fashion. The fashion as well. And the fashion. Because hip hop, phenomenal. But hip hop was very driven, at least from our perspective, to sportswear fashion. Mm hmm. Where Jamaican Jamaicans had that as well, but they were mixing with African garments and colors, garments and cuts, and, 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 and different uh, kind of textures and fabrics. And yeah. I'm very driven by structural things, right? Like not just the printing or, or whatever, but the how they cut the, the 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 you know how you know the cut the the fucking t-shirts, uh, shirts, not yeah, t-shirts, how, shirts or how pants it or whatever. looks and how it feels, how it sits Dude, on the body. Yeah, I got this Buju Bunton album, Mr. Mansion, right? And the cover is him sitting on the stool, whatever, and he's rocking this whole printed Jaguar situation that's kind of transparent as well. And I was like, I don't know this guy's music, but just by the cover, this music, so, it's, uh, so it's amazing. And then so, obviously when I heard the music, it's like okay, yeah, definitely. So now, in your in as you're going through your teenage years, you're in you're in the '90s. You've had this influence through your parents, through create uh, through photography and creativity. How does that shape you into what do you want to do for the rest of your life sure. at that time? So one it was because the artistic environment. It was never a pressure of me. Um, yo, go, again, go to law school, go to medical school, whatever. So it wasn't that. Um, I was doing well in school. I, you know, again, there's a lot, a lot of violence. I dropped out of high school. I joined a radio in Rio, a community radio in downtown Rio. It had a good reach. Uh, from Monday to Thursday, from midnight to 5 a.m., I think I was 18 years old or whatever. Did that for two years. Great experience. I love DJing the radio more than anything. I, I really like the radio experience. Because in, in the radio, you don't have an exactly BPM. You don't have an exactly demand for dance. Love, I love the nightlife. I love the clubs. But to to spin records, me personally, the club, obviously, you have a certain limitation. You're not Absolutely. Gonna, you're not going to put a slow song because people want to dance. Yeah. At the radio, you can do whatever you want, especially for me, nine to five and one. Yeah, no, like <laughs> one of my great friends right now, a uh, great friend, Mike, he he uh, he works at Night Shift at Hot, mm. Hot 87, yeah. and he just be up there. Yeah, like you can, <laughs> like you can really, but you also learn how to hone your craft at that time. You learn how to, to really set a playlist, how to make a set sound, how to create your personality. Because, you know, again, you're not just because you have that freedom and you're just going to put a super slow song and then you're going to put <laughs> yeah. some 150 BPM situation. It doesn't make sense. But you had that kind of like freedom of creative uh, there. So from the radio, um, I connected with this, back then was the biggest body funk MC in Rio. Uh, I started DJing with his crew at parties, but I wasn't a great DJ uh 
to DJ a parties. I wasn't very focused in the mixing, whatever. So that wasn't my focus, to be honest. And then his manager called me one day. He was like, bro, you have an incredible selection of music, but your mixing sucks. But you know a lot of people. You're very good on talking. Come to work with me on the management side. And that's how I started. But the crazy thing is, again, body funk music back then was forbidden in Rio. Really? By the mayor. Yeah. So he made a law, whatever, to forbid. Like, you could not put a party. You got to get those documents that no one could get. To trace history of Rio, any African form of culture in the city, in certain moment of the city, got forbidden by the law. Capoeira, all the religions, um, samba, funk, all. People say that in the early 1900s, if you're black and you're carrying an acoustic guitar, you would go to jail. So it's a city that has one of the biggest black populations in the world, in the country that has the second largest black population in the world, but criminalizes um, black people like in insane ways. Sounds like uh, sounds like pirate radio. Years ago, when uh, when they still started on the radio stations, I forgot the movie, but I saw that about that in London. I think it had to also do with with like oh, radio. Shabarex had a yeah. song about that with Coco T, right? Yeah, so it was criminalized, right? So now the funk scene, it's in the favelas, being supported by the cartel. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very deep context to that, right? Um, but me working as a junior manager in that scene. I remember my first night that I transcended by being a DJ to go into management. The big manager, obviously, he he tells me when this favela, you know, the artist is performing. He's like, "Yo, you need to collect the money." I was like, "Oh, sure. Where? At the turf. You gotta go to the chrome AK dude <laughs> and ask him for the money." <laughs> so him there, like, how old are you at this time? I was eight. No, no, I was eighteen. I was. Like 20, I'm assuming. Yeah, 19 to 20, something like that. So you're looking like, are you shitting me? <laughs> I mean, I grew up in a community. Like, yeah, so you're like, you didn't it, think but it's still, that wasn't my community. I didn't know anyone there. <laughs> and, you know, I'm always being a respectful cat, right? I'm not like, you know. Not trying to be a tough guy. But definitely not a tough guy, but also, um, you know, I'm, I'm chilling, right? <laughs> so I go there and this. <laughs> This dude had like huge bags of of of, of, of cocaine weed, <laughs> and you know it's in the middle of the night. The parties, you know, body funk parties usually in the hood in Brazil are held in soccer fields with ten thousand, five thousand people, huge sound systems, so the action is intense. <laughs> and I go there, I'm like, yo, I need to talk to someone, someone with the Chrome AK. <laughs> and this dude comes with the AK with a chunk of money in his hands. Oh, you work with that guy. And he respect me so much because of the artist. And he gave me all that money in my hands. I'm like, yo, man. So that was my entry to the music industry from the man, from the behind-the-scenes perspective, not as a DJ, from behind the scenes. So I dropped out of high school, joined this radio, eventually went to work with this artist in that type of an environment. But then him as an artist, he was the king of that type of genre. And he comes from the hood, whatever, funny enough, but he spoke English and French. He had the opportunity to go to private school because uh, his mom was a maid in a wealthy family. So he learned French and English. 
because of that, he had connections in the United States, in France, in Israel, in some other countries or whatever. So suddenly, and I spoke English as well. I taught myself how to speak English because I was loving hip hop so much that I wanted to understand. My mom spoke many languages. My mm. mom is first generation in Brazil from immigrant parents. So she already spoke other languages or whatever, right? So I was back then. Then at this point, we already had internet. So I was downloading the lyrics from Wu-Tang Clan, Master P, De La Soul, Public Enemy, Onyx. I think those are the main groups I was downloading the song, <laughs> the lyrics. And I was listening to the lyrics and reading. At the same time. At the same time. So anytime I had someone that spoke English, I would go to them and like, hey, what does that mean? <laughs> and, 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 and to be very honest, man, New York rappers are very hard to understand because... Absolutely. How deep the lyrics goes. Yes. How intrinsic they go in metaphors and shit. Well, even the artists that you named, like you look at somebody like... Like Wu- De La Soul, bro. Like De La Soul. Wu-Tang I mean? ve- is heavily influenced in 5% culture. Right, exactly, exactly. So, so no, learning that is... Well, learning, listening to Wu-Tang is its own language in and of itself. And the funny thing is that... So you're going to laugh crazy over here, but the one that was the easiest for me to learn, and to be honest, I wasn't digging West Coast rap back then. For me, it was mm. too commercial... Sorry, everyone that's listening. <laughs> I love West Coast rap nowadays. I have mad respect. But back then... East Coast rap ran, ran music at that time. Right, exactly. So, you know, and, and, and again, it had, it had Caribbean influence. It had some artistic situation, like jazz influence, whatever. That mm-hmm. spoke to me because of my parents' records or whatever. So, but one rapper that was very easy to understand because it was very clear... And the lyrics wasn't very deep, was Master P. That makes sense. So he was the easiest. But the funny thing, now I'm going to cats that spoke English, which could be my mom, yeah. her friends, whatever. And I'm like, can you help me with the translation of these lyrics? And I'm going right here or whatever. And I'm asking them to help me with like, make, 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 make crack like this. Ghetto dope. <laughs> you know like, ice cream man. Yeah, ice cream man, right? Like nine, nine, whatever. And they're like, oh, <laughs> Bitleys and Hummers, <laughs> and you like, and, it, and she's like, "This is what you want. This is what you want me to translate." Like, yeah, I need, I need to know this. Right? Yeah, I need, like, because it wasn't exactly. I need to learn how to make crack. <laughs> no, no, no. It was about the English. Yeah, but anyway, so you know, so I learned English, whatever, and then I'm working with that artist because his connections. Um, American rappers who come to Brazil and rarely come in Rio. They will go to Sao Paulo. For Sao Paulo is the hip-hop capital in Brazil. But when they came to Rio, um, they will go to these artists as a get-go artist or whatever to hang out with, whatever. And because I spoke English from a production perspective, I'll be the get-going kid to do shit. So I had the um, privilege to have work with Dead Press in Rio, with Snoop Dogg, with Jeru. So, mm-hmm. you know I mean? I, I, I was already... Um, kind of like a liaison. Kind of like a liaison, yeah, 100. Um, the opportunity to, 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 to meet people from other cultures or whatever. And then that free jazz festival situation. I was attending all these concerts. Now I'm really well connected in the music scene. So I'm getting tickets to go to the concerts or whatever. I saw uh, Eagle Eye Cherry. I saw The Roots. I saw D'Angelo, Erica Badu. 
I saw Miles Davis in the early 90s, but then with my father photographing the thing. Uh, Guru with Jazz Matas. Um, I saw uh, Soul Solid Crew from London. <laughs> yeah, um, Ronnie Sides represent again from England. Uh, Massive Attack, Kraftwerk, fuck, you know, Orishas from Cuba. And often I was just connecting with this artist, man, because I spoke English. Mm tiny bit of Spanish, I mean, so Spanish is a little bit of similar to, to Portuguese, but, so yeah, you know, I was connecting, in 1999, I had the opportunity, because my father, to go to Paris for a few months, and Paris opened my mind, a lot, in Paris, I got to know Bounty Killers music, French rap, which is incredible back then in the 90s, Arabic music coming from North Africa, I mean, African music at large, bro, like, Papa Wemba, Manu Di Bambu. So this is so now. Yeah, now now it's a whole nother adventure because you have oh, the dude. you have the tools that you that you grew up with. Yeah, and I think having that um having that that background, you have an attention for detail oh, at that moment too. Yeah, like an analogy that I always made to Brazilians was like, man, we got like we're grading so many things, but we gotta get better with detail. And I was making the knowledge to barbershops here, man. <laughs> you don't laugh, but like, you know, the detail of the fading culture and the whole shape up or whatever. I was like, bro, the level of detail of that? <laughs> Come on, man. Like, look how Jamaicans, Cubans, and Americans are producing music. We need to get up on that. Yeah. I was just like, yo, we cannot have this beautiful, incredible music. Brazilians are probably with the some of the best in the world in live music. Yeah. But when it comes to produce the albums, not shitting on Brazilian producers, we have incredible producers. Many of them are my friends. But listen to the sounds coming from, again, those three countries, for me, are the best. Yeah. Jamaica, the United States, and Cuba. Listen to what's going on there. Right? And the detail. I was like, fuck. So yeah, bro, like, I was in that. But again... The scene was very violent. It was a lot of violence. Friends of mine were getting killed. Uh, when we talk about violence, uh, we all respect the United States. I'm sure a lot of people lost families. We yeah. lost a lot of shit, but it's different. It's not gangbanging, man. It's cartel war zone. Yeah. With bazookas, Absolutely. grenades, people dropping helicopters over there. You know what I mean? So, so when you get to, to get to Paris and now like... You're looking at like the Pompidou buildings and the Eiffel Towers and things well, like that. Well, yeah, but I was also, yeah, but I was also, um, I had the opportunity to live with two African friends of mine that were, that were moving uh, counterfeit or knockoffs brand clothing in Leal, uh, Leal um, uh, neighborhood. And they were living in the project, so often hanging out with them in the projects. And you see like the whole spectrum of immigration especially coming from Africa, a little bit of the French Caribbean, and a little bit of, of Vietnam, Cambodia, um, some Chinese as well, but mostly Algerians, Moroccans, Senegalese, Congolese, Ivory Coast, you know and I mean? So you see, one, the segregation of French society, the fucking intellectual society of fraternity and brotherhood or whatever, when it comes to the realness of it, it's so segregated because these cats were French. They're born in France, yeah. but treated as second-class citizens. You know what I mean? But besides that, the beauty of it, mm -hmm. the beauty of the African cultures over there, how they're influencing 
the kids in France. Kids in the big cities of France nowadays, in Marseille to Paris to Lyon, whatever. It's just like you cannot take African culture and, and say, oh, that's fr-. no. Af- like France, it's pa- part of African culture nowadays. And it is incredible, right? Like we all watched the film La Haine in Brazil mm-hmm. before I went to Paris. So in Paris, I'm seeing in reality what's going on there. I was like, wow. It has that negative aspect of, of, of segregation and shit, but also this beauty, beauty richness of French hip hop, of all the DJs, of this epicenter of African music to the world, you know what I mean? And it seems like you're still in that time. You haven't. The uh, fashion, you, bro, in the street. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm, it seems like, like throughout the course of even in, in, in your earlier years, you always had the ability to tap in with niche audiences yeah or or the culture behind what was being presented at the time yeah 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 so yeah that comes from my parents i believe right and and also live coming from rio so again coming from a middle class family um but my f- father's family is from north side rio which is the most impoverished but also most traditional uh part of town I'm from Central Side. I'm the only person in the family that's from Central Side. I was often going from South Side Rio, which is the richest part, to North Side Rio, to Central Side. Um, my mom's from Sao Paulo, so she's not even from Rio. So going to my family mm-hmm. from Sao Paulo, which is an immigrant family coming from Europe. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So my cousins speak Italian with themselves. Wow. Yeah. Like, yeah um but also my from especially my mom, you know, like grew up in a household that embedded in the Afro and, and, and native traditions of, of religion. So all of that like plays it, an influence as your influence that you're capable of navigating yourself with respect in different demographics, different cultures, different mindsets, scenes. different scenes, social classes or whatever. Then the experience in Paris, then the experience with the Bali Funk scene in Rio, the whole violence and the and the beauty of, of the culture whatever but I was tired of the violence and and how amateur amateur mm-hmm. was the scene back then and I wanted to expand myself I had a connection in LA my dream was to come to New York to be honest I never dream of LA I had a girlfriend in LA so I well, I guess I'm going to LA. So I now guess I'm going to LA. So you leave, you leave Paris. No, I leave Paris. I go to Rio. Go back. To, go. I Rio. go to Rio, but I, in, in between that, I'm like between Bahia, which is a north a northeastern uh, state in Brazil. I go to mm-hmm. São Paulo often. I'm, I'm in between places in, in but based in Rio. And then you make the decision to go to LA. In 2004, I moved to LA. Um, yeah. I, 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 I moved to LA with this girlfriend and uh, as I came with $700 bro like you know like obviously with this, with her support staying in the house or whatever like I, I, I had a roof I had a little bit of structure but with $700 in my pockets or whatever so within a few months maybe two or three months I got a job <laughs> that was my first job in the United States selling cattle corn you know it was cattle corn right? yeah, yeah. yeah cattle corn in this machine um, in Crenshaw. So Crenshaw and King, 
by by what they call the projects of the, the jungles or, or yeah. Baldwin Hills Mall. Mm-hmm. So the funny story is like I was walking in Venice Beach. I saw the Senegalese dude selling kettle corn. You know, tasted the kettle corn or whatever. Probably bought it or whatever. And because dude the Senegalese again from my experience in Paris was start talking Senegalese music with the guy. The guy's like, how oh, this fucker know about my music? <laughs> yeah. So we. We're cool, whatever, and I'm like, bro, I'm looking for a job. He's like, oh, we're actually looking for someone to help with the machine, with the popcorn machine. And I trained for a few days with him at the beach, and I'm like, this is dope. Like, they pay $5.75 an hour <laughs> to work at the beach. Yo, great. The weather's always nice. The weather's nice. People are beautiful. It's the yeah. beach. Hey, 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 hey. And then when I finished the training, I was like, so tomorrow I start. Um, what time do I come here? He's like, no, you're not coming here. This is my spot. You're coming to the other machine. Oh, where? Where? In Crenshaw. <laughs> so I go to work in Crenshaw. So that was my first job in the United States, right? And smack dab in the hood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Malik was the owner. Yo, shout out Malik. First, first opportunity in this country. Thank you. Um, <laughs> he was like, yeah, man, people here don't call kettle corn. They call ghetto corn, ghetto corn. <laughs> You know what I mean? It was crazy, man. I had these two Guatemalan girls selling porn DVDs on the side, and they got deported <laughs> in that week. And I'm Brazilian. I'm Latin American. I'm like, fuck, man. So you're like, what the fuck? Yo, I'm like, you're live from the stoop podcast with me, Robbie Digital. Well, what what is live from the stoop? Live from the stoop is just a conversation that I have with people from different walks of life. About how they got from the stoop to where they are today From art, music, design, culinary You name it, you'll, you'll find it here So uh, sit back, relax And if you do like, make sure you rate, review, and comment And most importantly, subscribe Now let's get back to the show Let's go You know, it was crazy Yeah, it was funny um, old ladies from the community coming to buy the the thing, gang bangers, this pimp that was very annoying, <laughs> coming every day to annoy the shit out of me. Buying, buying popcorn. That fucker didn't even buy the, the popcorn. He was just coming to annoy the shit out of me, talking, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> well, everybody else did, and shout out to everybody that supported the kettle That's fire. That's thank fire. Thank you so much. $5.75 an hour. Malik, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but after a while... I, um, you know, it was $5.75. Like, hey, I got, I, got, I, got, I got shit to do. This I couldn't work. survive. Yeah. Uh, and then some friends. Uh, I So I met these cats. They're running. They lo- uh, so it's two reggae parties in LA, right? One, it's very old school, roots, reggae, whatever, called the Dub Club. Shout out to Benji. Benji. Father of Paloma um, Seltzer, I think was her last name, and Sage. Mm. Obviously, two really well-known. Sage is obviously a skateboarder, model for Supreme. Paloma is also shiny as a model everywhere. But shout-out to Benji, very good friends of mine. He runs the dub club in L.A. But even before meeting Benji, I met up with Q-Boy that runs Jamaican Gold Party in L.A. for... I don't know, bro, like 25 years, maybe 30, I don't know. So I started like coming to the club and, and here and there getting some gigs of like distributing flyers back then, you know, people be in the streets. Yeah, giving out flyers. Giving street out flyers. Team. And street shit, team shit. Street team shit. Sometimes helping with the production with the green room, 
pain. So I remember I paid Shabarank's and TOK when they came to perform, <laughs> doing production in the green room, whatever. And then uh, they had an MC, MC Commander, Trinidadian Ras dude, and he ran a ragged shop in Little Ethiopian neighborhood in LA. So eventually I got out of the popcorn business. I also broke up with the girlfriend, went to live on top of the store, and I was working as a front man at the ragged shop in Little Ethiopia. <laughs> so so I feel like the somehow I feel like the the breaking of the popcorn job and the girlfriend had literally happened in the same week. It's like, yo, I can't do this. No, not really. No, no, I no. can't do this popcorn well, anymore. No, the popcorn. No, I got the job at the ragged shop, and then within a few months, girl broke up with me. Yeah. And the day, that, that's a crazy story, right? So remember, so, you know, life is crazy, right? Like, nothing's a coincidence. My gateway to, to dance hall was Shinehead, which is an artist, a Jamaican yeah. artist from, I believe, maybe he's from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Maybe from the Bronx. I, I, maybe he's from. I don't know. But he's from New York. He's from New York. He's from New York. Right. Shinehead love love Shinehead Sidewalk University first CD I had. So girlfriend breaks up with me. Mm-hmm. One day she comes. She brings on her minivan all my shit, <laughs> and she just puts in the front of the store. She's like, ah, I hate you, whatever. I was like, ah, right, whatever. And you're like, well, at least my stuff is live from the stoop podcast with me, Robbie Digital. Well, what what is Live from the Stoop? Live from the Stoop is just a conversation that I have with people from different walks of life about how they got from the stoop to where they are today. From art, music, design, culinary, you name it, you'll you'll find it here. So uh, sit back, relax, and if you do like, make sure you rate, review, and comment. And most importantly, subscribe. Now let's get back to the show. Let's go. <laughs> Thank you, girl. Appreciate you because I was Appreciate trying to figure out I was gonna get all this yeah, stuff here right. anyway. Now I'm fucking sad because the dude was paying five dollars and seventy five cents an hour as well to yeah. work in the ragged shop. But I rather work in the ragged shop than the popcorn machine. She's like, yo, what is with this five dollars? <laughs> Mind you, I think back then the, the minimum wage in California was eight dollars. So. Shout out to Carl, MC Commander, for giving me the second work opportunity. You underpaying me. It was all good, bro. I appreciate you. I anyway. appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. So you, now we're... It was a great, so, great, great counselor, uh, advisor, mentor for me. Um, so I'm all sad, like, yo, Carl, fuck, man. The girl just told me I have nowhere to go. He's like, no, you can sleep on, 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 the, on the second floor, on the top of the store. There's no bed. I have a sleeping bag and it's in the winter in LA. I'm Brazilian, bro. Winter for us is the worst shit. <laughs> but you have a sleeping bag, whatever. Um, but, you know, you, I'll allow you to, to sleep there for free. But what do you have to do to pay for it? Every day you wake up, you just clean up, just mop the place. You're the super. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, you just mop <laughs> the place. But at nighttime in LA, they close the clubs at 2 a.m. Yeah. So the Ethiopians from the street... They'll go to the second floor to drink tea, smoke some, and 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 uh, gamble games like cards yeah. and maybe dom- I don't think dominoes though, but, but cards. Mm-hmm. So listen to reggae music, Ethiopian music, and he was like, "You just need to co- control the gambling and serve them the tea and the weed." I was like, "All right." <laughs> that was the first day, right? So I'm getting myself prepared for that. Put my shit on the second floor, or whatever. But I'm working the store. I had to work daytime. Yeah. 
as I'm working the soil, he's like, oh, by the way, tonight is the trout tribes, uh, you know, Rastafari, the trout tribes meeting, whatever, celebration, because Selassie, I don't know if it was Selassie's birthday or something, mm. within the Rastafari religion that, you know, was a, a gathering, a meeting, or whatever. It's like a Jamaican friend of mine is coming to meet me at the store, and you're welcome to join. You know the culture. You res- you're very respectful. Uh, you're welcome. Guess who walked inside the store with his huge glasses speaking Patois? Who? Shinehead. Wow. Yo, my youth, Wagwan. <laughs> and I was like, that's Shinehead. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're sitting there in awe. I'm like, yo, what the fuck? And Shine was like, yo, so Carl told me that I'm supposed to give you a your ride with me to the gathering. And suddenly I'm in a fucking beamer <laughs> with Shinehead. And I don't even have words to tell you, bro. You, you, the, you, the first artist that I had yeah, a CD. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it is so for such a full circle moment. Oh, incredible! And that's not a coincidence, right? Obviously. So we go to this gathering, beautiful gathering within the Rastafarian communities in California, whatever. Dope. So for months, I'm working uh, at the store and with the Ethiopians uh, serving them tea and the whole thing, whatever. Great, great experience. Obviously, couldn't survive off of five dollars that long in that. Yeah. In, 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 you know, uh, so I moved to work in a Brazilian restaurant. I started in the kitchen, assembling plates. Um, Bossa Nova restaurant. People that live in LA, everyone knows Bossa Nova restaurants. One of the most popular restaurants in LA. Happened to be Brazilian. Obviously, I spoke good English in an environment that not everybody was speaking English. So they moved me to be a cashier to pick up the phone and and um, get orders or whatever. Within six months, I became a manager of the restaurant. Now, that's a restaurant in West Hollywood. So we're not making $5.70 anymore. No, I'm making minimum wages plus tips. Not great, but... But it's not $5. It's not $5. So now <laughs> I am moving to apartments yeah. as roommate with other folks. Yo, bro, I have crazy stars in the restaurant mm-hmm. and crazy stories with this roommate thing that Americans have. Yo, roommates are the worst. <laughs> I don't fuck with that, but... It, it's you have to do what you have to do, right? You have to do what you got to do, yeah. So, you know, I, I got to a point that I was sharing an apartment. It was five people inside one bedroom apartment. Be like that, yeah, right. So that's that. But um, crazy stories, bro. I was sharing this penthouse apartment in Hollywood with this actor from Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> but this dude got hanged on that shit, so he changed his image to his name, uh-huh. the pirate. Everything was the pirate, <laughs> and you know he was using some some addictive. Situations, <laughs> right? So and suddenly, just... I'm seeing the crackheads from the neighborhood, mind you, Hollywood, like Santa Monica, La Brea type of shit. Yeah, back then with some. Suddenly, they inside the apartment, getting high, and I'm like, "Fuck, this is this house is changing." <laughs> Yo, this house is mad changing, bro. Like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> like I, I know this is not the. This word. guy had a dog called Seven. A boxer dog. So it's not a small dog. It's a big dog. Yeah. And the dog was nice. Huge dog in, 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 in the apartment, but cool. One day, Seven is there no more. I was like, yo, bro, what happened to Seven? I had to release him to freedom. I was like, how so? Oh, I just put him in this corner, and he walked away. 
<laughs> I was like, dude, you just gave up on the dog in the street? <laughs> this dude was so high, he's like, he connected himself. <laughs> like, fuck, man. <laughs> he's like, oh, I gotta get out of and, here. And, and, nah, but look, man, I never made that much money in my life, right? Yeah. Like, because now, that restaurant, you could work. You know, I don't know if the law allowed, whatever, but it's the hustle of the immigrants. You could work in many um, roles at the restaurant, right? So yeah. it got to a point by um, uh, by weekly, I had 19 paychecks. I was a cashier in two locations. They had three locations, right? So I was a cashier in two locations. I, I, I'm trying to remember everything. I was doing flyers, so flyers is you pretty much walk and putting menus at people doors. Yeah. So when they wake up or whatever, they yeah, they yeah, yeah, the yeah, restaurant yeah, yeah. To, to the So I was doing the flyers for the three restaurants, cashiering two restaurants, managing the three restaurants. I was a host in the three restaurants. I don't know, bro. I had nineteen paychecks per per you know, per bi weekly, whatever. The five dollars was adding up. Homie, <laughs> I was working possibly like twelve to fourteen hours a day. So I didn't have time to hang up at the crack house <laughs> that you were that, that you was supposedly living. sleeping at. Right? Yeah, I was crazy. <laughs> I can see it in your face. You still feel stressed out just thinking about it. Oh my god, I was stressed out with the jobs and with coming with, home. Yeah, with you know, what was the character from um, from Dave Chappelle? Uh, the Clayton Big, uh, not Clayton Big, the Tyrone Cl- Biggums. <laughs> yeah That was my roommate Thank you <laughs> Shout out roommate I'm not gonna tell your name Cause I know it's niche But yeah <laughs> Thank you for you too You agree uh, <laughs> <laughs> So yeah man I'm living in that situation That's very Hollywood life Right Yeah And I never lost the connection I was good at that With music With the Jamaican Gold crew Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They obviously had connections, not just with Raggy, but and, and Carl, the commander, the, the guy that owned yeah. the Raggy shop. But yeah, also with the hip-hop scene in LA, all of that. Now, the restaurant had a location in Hollywood. They still have Sunset, uh, two blocks from La Brea. So, super great location. O- open until four in the morning. So, it's the most, it becomes the most popular restaurant late night in Hollywood. Because it's open late, everything closes at two. So all the Hollywood crowd, from porn stars to cops to drug dealers to rappers to radio DJs to the DJs at the clubs to club promoters, everyone goes Comes there here. at yeah. late night. I need an escape plan for the fucking restaurant. That's not my life. So I told the owners, I'm going to drop all my shifts all. I want to be the head manager of the late night operations in Hollywood. No one want to do that because it was, honestly... Drunk people, people selling drugs inside the restaurant, people having sex inside the restrooms, fights. It's the graveyard shift. I got the shift. I saw I saw a guy getting killed. Yeah. You know what I mean? On Sunset and Sycamore, whatever. I, it, it was some crazy shit. But at the same time, it was all these connections. And they gave it to me. I worked there for four years. I became the well-known... Brazilian manager of Bossa Nova restaurant from 2006 to 2010. Right? And I made friendships and shout out to all these people. 
DJ Big Scythe, Power 106, Eric Deluxe, um, man, DJ Sour Milk. Love Sour Milk. Sour Milk, great, great, great cats, man. And um, Leakers, Power 106, yeah, like this. Yo, guy. shout out to all the Snoop Dogg's team from Cashmere and Stampede Management, Jasmine, Frank, Taff, right? Um, Snoop himself, Teddy Riley, what's up? <laughs> yeah, Teddy used to come to the restaurant all the time. I had Stevie Wonder singing to me once, bro. Fuck. That story is crazy. So I'm putting the music, and I'm the manager, right? So I'm trying to create an environment that I'm not trying to be like some uh, a Bach or some yeah, some dick some, dickhead manager because you because you knew what you knew what uh-huh. you signed up for. No, nah, bro, but I'm not trying to also be a club yeah. because people are getting out of the club. You know what I mean? So I'm not you trying wanna, to put anyone be, to sleep, but I'm putting you. You want to be that third. That like when I worked at Starbucks, you called it the third place, right? Like it's called the third place place. Like you're not home, you're not at the party, you're kind of in the before middle. Before you go have sex or you go to sleep, you gotta get the food. You gotta you come gotta, here. You gotta, you know, you gotta come so here. I'm putting like a, a Shade, yeah, Bunny Spear, Anita Baker. Um, you know, you set I mean? the mood, you set the vibe. Yeah, right. So Stevie used to go to the restaurant at least once a week with his. I think he. Partners in the radio there or something. I know he has a church or something, something, something like that. So I had this all, all the time. He came with all these folks, right? So the, the waiter was like, yo, uh, they call in the manager at the table, Steve's table. And I'm thinking someone from the table, right? So I'm not thinking it's Steve. So I go to the table, it's like, hey, oh, what's up? They're like, yo, Steve wants to talk to you. I'm like, oh. what do you want to talk to me about? <laughs> yo, exactly. I'm like, yo, hey, Steve, how are you? Obviously, he don't look at you. Yeah, clearly. Clearly. <laughs> but he's, you know, oh, man, how are you, man? Yo, who's this beautiful song that's playing? Now, the song's in English, right? And now, empowers me to be me. And I'm, yeah. oh, wow. I'm like, oh, you don't know? Oh, man, you, you know, uh, that's your friend, man. You guys recorded together, I think, in 1977. Uh, matter of fact, this song is actually in English because he was in exile in London, because dictatorship in Brazil, but he's Brazilian. And Stevie Wonder's like, oh, is that Gilberto Gio? I was like, yeah. Yo, when Stevie Wonder starts singing this song, but he, in his face, because the song is in English now, he could, yeah. you know? And he starts singing loud, hearing out, and doing the whole body yeah. move. Doing the Stevie. Yeah. Hearing out, I still can find where I belong. The whole, and, and sorry, everybody, I cannot sing. Sorry, Stevie. But thank you, Stevie. <laughs> Yo, the silent restaurant, silent, and everybody stand up. Wow. And he's singing, and I'm petrified on his side. Uh, and he's singing the song until the end of the track, and the whole restaurant clapping. <laughs> I was like, and, wow. and, and that's and, and you're looking like, this is why I did this. It made sense for me why. And I feel like, you know, it's funny how life works, right? Like, when you do what you love or you you find your divine purpose, even if you don't know what that purpose is in the moment. Everything clicks. You have clickable moments. Yeah, it, I, th- I think also people gave a lot of respect because they assumed that that restaurant is mostly Brazilians, Mexicans, Guatemalans, Salvadorians. Because we're all immigrants, they're assuming that we didn't know the cultures here, whatever, which is fine. I'm not... Yeah. It's a mistake. It's all good. But because I knew of it, I was very interested. I had a lot of passion. Um... 
I met the cast from Lain, the French movie, whatever. Yeah. I met them in the restaurant. Uh, it's fucking holy, right? Like, Rafael Sadiq was coming for two weeks to pick up, to go food. And I'm not the type to, like, oh, Rafael. Oh, my God. But one day, I don't know why we started a conversation about music. Yeah. And clearly, I'm, you know, Tony Tony Tone. My yes. father had Tony Tony Tone before I even like American music like that. Yeah. So we're talking about it. He's like, bro, I'm producing an album. What time do you finish the shift? I was like, oh, usually four. But if I have another manager here, sometimes I can ask them to cover me. I can. He's like, come to the studio, come hang. He was producing Kill Tip. And I'm there twice <laughs> hanging, watching him producing Kill Tip's album, which that's what, 2008, maybe? Yeah. Nine, uh, you know. That's fucking magical, bro. Like, it's Q-Tip and Rafael Sadiq. And it all comes from working at a restaurant. At a restaurant. <laughs> undocumented immigrant, bro. Yeah. So, I'm making all these connections. In 2010, I'm tired of it. I bounce out of the restaurant. And I start um, with all the connections now I have in Brazil, in the U.S., in Europe. In China, I made a friendship with this former VP of Nike in China. I mean, the guy's from New York, but he was living in China. He was taking care of entertainment and basketball in China. Shout out to Jerry Eraz, one of my best friends, mentor, great guy. So I have all these connections. I, 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 I leave the restaurant and I start booking American DJs overseas and, and, and Brazilians will come into LA to produce albums to do musical features with, with American um, uh, musicians um, produce videos so I'm doing that I'm being that liaison like as active producing a music video or a feature a, a music collaboration between two artists or uh, even albums at Red Bull Studios in West LA or whatever right like so I had the opportunity to work with Questlove, Dem Funk, uh, Maya Hawthorne, uh, shout out to Jackson. Uh, again, it's Snoop Dogg uh, with Stampede and Cashmere. Uh, and me and Snoop, Snoop has seen you your whole life. You and Snoop are like this at this point. Like you've no, seen no, Snoop, no, we're not that close. I was but close. you know him now. Like, oh, we, we, yeah, I, I was very close and, you know, it's too yeah. cool. Like, me and Taff, Taff doesn't work with Snoop no more, but Taff. But that relationship throughout, like... Who could? There's not many who could say through the course of their life they've met Snoop multiple times. Yeah, no, honey. <laughs> but it's so Snoop that's loves interesting. Brazil, right? Like Snoop, the, 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 the whole thing after I quit the restaurant was Taff calls me. He's like, bro, we're doing this YouTube show called GGN, and we need some models. Snoop loves Brazil, one of the biggest markets. Do you know any Brazilian models in LA? I was like, yeah, I do. So I stopped bringing models to the show. You know, for them to be featured in the fucking GGN thing, which was cool. But I saw the opportunity. I was like, man, you know, I'm well connected with a lot of musicians in LA, not necessarily just Brazilians. And can I bring them to be interviewed by the show? They're like, yeah, of course. So I brought Pac Div, Dem Funk. The Dem Funk situation was dope because they already had done that album together, the Funk album together. But you know, maybe artists are busy, whatever. I had good relationships. So they're like, yeah, bring Dem Funk. And Dem, yo, Dem was a great guy. Shout out to him as well. A crazy situation happened that day, bro. Like, we're doing the, the filming, the GGN shit. 
the album is not at uh, out yet. Actually, I think they were trying to even find a label to put the album out. Right? They take a break from the filming, whatever, and and Dame came to me. I was like, "Yo, you wanna smoke?" I was like, "Nah, I'm, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I smoke during the day, right?" Like, I'm, I was like, "No, I don't smoke." He's like, yeah, "I'm gonna smoke. Well, come, you know, come hang." As I'm walking, Snoop is walking. I was like, "All right." Soon they go to this car, like a low rider car. I go to the back. They go to both to the front seats. Yeah. And they talk whatever. They start rolling whatever. And they're like, yo, by the way, did you, did you heard the album? I was like, no, it's not out there. They're like, oh, what? They put the album. They're smoking, listening to the funk album Snoop Dogg and them funk had it together. And they asked me what I'm thinking of it. Wow. I was blown away. Way more high than both of them at that point. <laughs> I was like, wow, bro. This it's is so amazing. Good. I was like, wow. And the, the, the album's fucking dope. I was like, wow. So those experiences were incredible, right? And then I, I brought up the group Pack Dave um, yeah. um, to the show. Established a really, really friendship, brotherhood relationship with the three MCs. Um, from Pack Dave, you know what I mean? And eventually in 2013, we did a tour in Brazil. Now I can travel, whatever. I took them to Brazil, stayed three months. Me and Like from Pack Dave, I mean, we did the, the concerts. Um, the other MCs came back to, to the US, but me and Like stayed in Sao Paulo for a while, for a few months. Uh, he produced songs over there, or whatever. Now I'm back to my country. Um, then I brought up DJ Revolution there. We did an album that unfortunately never came out. He sampled a bunch of Brazilian songs and featured a bunch of Brazilian rappers in that album. So I'm doing that with Red Bull. So doing all these things, you know, and, and bringing all these Brazilian artists to LA, whatever. The do-overs, doing shit with the do-overs. I know about the, the do-over yeah, party. Yeah, the do-over party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Brazilian been some, DJs to them. A couple of those, and yeah. then start licensing music to FIFA, to the EA Sports yeah. game. Um, so pretty much all the Brazilian songs. And this um, is all through relationships. All through relationships. Nurtured in the restaurant, in the clubs. Uh, you know, and I think when in the know, house parties in LA, uh, that's a. I think that's the thing too, right? When you have, when you develop relationships and you have that kind of rapport with people, nothing seems impossible, because it's all a matter of a conversation. Yeah, because it's more real. It's more organic, right? It's, it's like it's it's as real as it can get. Like mm-hmm. you know, shout out to Rocio. Like Rocio, it's this. She's like someone like you know. She knows. Everyone in music, everyone, you know what I mean? And she has so much respect from musicians or whatever. So hanging with her, hanging with the Mochila guys, with Eric Coleman and B+, hanging again with the guys from the do-over, with Jamie and Chris, with Allo Black, did some shit with Allo, you know what I mean, with some music with Brazil, with this Brazilian rapper called Marcelo de Dois from Brazil, incredible. Um, so... Thriving the LA scene, yeah. So with that, those relationships and, and and bridging them, like seeing opportunities of of people across the world love Brazilian music. Yeah. How many American songs are sampled by Brazilian? You know, like absolutely. Like the Far Side uh, Running, that's yep. a Brazilian sample. 
Casa Bay from uh, Mos Def, Brazilian sample. Yep. You know. So the relationship is there, and I, I think you put yourself in a position where you can foster well, that relationship. So as you as you're moving, this is like twenty. This is 2013, now 2014. Yeah. The World Cup's coming to Rio. Um, Which is a big deal at that time. Oh, my God. Fuck. The World Cup in Brazil, this, the country of soccer, the biggest, the most popular sports in the world, this country is the country of football in the world, and the World Cup's there. The only time we had the World Cup is 1950. Imagine. Now it's 2014. So I am there... Now I am managing a rapper from Rio, which is a very good friend of mine, Dugueto. Um, doing production with this DJ crew, Trap Killers from Sao Paulo. So I'm between both cities. I get up with my guy that was from Nike China. Now he's Nike Global, overseeing global relationships, Jerry Rasmi. You know, the World Cup comes. I, 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 I book the rapper to be the host of the, the the Nike house for the World Cup. So I'm hanging with this VP. Nike Brazil, uh, let's be honest, I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? From maybe 200 employees, they had one black employee. Yeah. It was very racist. Uh, they had minimum connections to, to the Brazilian diversity, to Brazilian culture. People creatives or whatever, so they barely had any connections. Uh, then all these VPs, president, everyone's in Brazil, obviously, for the World Cup, but Nike Brazil could barely provide them any connections. Because they weren't tapped in. They weren't tapped in. Like, a friend of mine said the best thing. They were, like, they were more connected to what's going on in Coachella, Lollapalooza in the U.S. than the samba being performed in the corners across our city. And that's and a huge, huge that's, issue. That's with any brand sometimes. Like, I yeah. think brands, well, often, oftentimes they have, they try to explain themselves globally, but they don't do the responsibility of being in the globe that they're, the place that they're holding. It's a lot of, it's a lot of problems in there, right? Let's be honest. So, uh, far majority of brands are owned by one specific demographic that is the most privileged demographic because uh, everything that's been happening historically with that like racism colonialism yeah. right it's white demographic so they the majority of them own, own, own brands that's already an issue because besides everything it's the limitations of it right mm-hmm. um, and usually are owned by those demographics in Europe and especially in the United States right so they have a, a very uh, uh, um, conflictuous and, and, and limited way to see the world they think the world the world is just the United States. The rest is the rest, or, or, or things like that. Um, and yeah, when you know, when when they look at the large scale of things, they're not looking at the cultural influences and sports influences coming from Brazil, from Jamaica, from Trinidad and Tobago, from Nigeria, from South Korea, Thailand. Mm-hmm. Nah, and they have this agenda of implementing American. Pop culture into the spaces, yeah, and not necessarily want to consume that. To be honest, I think that's not our shit. And I think in those moments, it's your responsibility as a brand to encourage the culture that you're in and present that culture outward and not necessarily inward. 
I think the, the magic of these brands that this brand seems to often not understand, sometimes they do, but often they don't understand it. They exist because, I'm not even going to call consumers, people create the branding for them for free in the streets. Primarily black communities. We do. And people say black and Latinos, but let's be honest, often the Latinos creating that in the East Coast are black. They are. Dominicans, y'all black. Yeah, absolutely. Americans, a lot of them, y'all black too. Right? <laughs> I uh, wholeheartedly agree. So uh, I don't think that's necessarily what happens. So now you're sitting there, you, you have that, your DJ. Not, not yeah. that all Latin Americans are black. Yeah. Lot native, lot white, Asian. You know, we have yeah. all races in the spectrum of Latin America. But when it comes to the black diaspora communities across, especially in the Americas, Europe as well, it creates a lot of the branding for this brand. Mm-hmm. Who makes Nike a brand in France and England is the African and the Caribbean communities. Yep. Within grime, dance hall, soccer, French rap. It's it's the truth. It, right? It's absolutely the truth. And and most oftentimes on a on a broader brush, most oftentimes brands don't have to the word that we've been using to liaisons to really properly communicate communicate yeah, that because that puts them out usher, of, yeah that puts them out of the comfort zone and and they think that that the privilege will be challenged no mm-hmm. one that has their own privilege especially when it's on top of other demographics they want to have they lose their privilege Absolutely. so they ignorantly they think they will lose their privilege actually their privilege is fucked up and they should lose anyways so, but yeah, uh, you know, but so you get, so like you're saying, so you, Rio, Rio has World Cup, you have your DJ, DJ hosting parties for, for Nike at the time, the VP, your Not friend. Not a DJ, he was a rapper. So rapper, he was, yeah. Yeah, so he was hosting, like, you know, as an MC, the things, I'm taking all this Nike leadership people across town to the mm-hmm. happenings. It's the World Cup, bro. It's the most beautiful time. The country is emerging in a lot of political problems, often uh, influenced by especially this country right here. But besides that, it was a beautiful moment in our, in our country, in, in especially in Rio. Uh, and a lot of things are happening. And I'm connected. So I'm, think, I'm taking these Nike uh, uh, leadership teams through events, parties, happenings, cultural things, whatever, right? And they like, wow, this guy... You know, he's outside. Yeah, he's dope. Like he's a cool dude. I'm hanging with them, whatever. And one night, they take me to this uh, sushi restaurant. It's incredible sushi restaurant, Southside Rio. Only Nike leadership in that table, and me. Mm. It's the president of Nike back then, Trevor Edwards. Trevor Edwards, yeah. You know me. Now there's a good friend of mine, shout out to him, Jesse Stolek. Um, I think back then he was the head of Nike Digital, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it's great, great leadership of Nike. Jerry yeah. Rasmi, Danny Taylor, um, Gerardo Carucci, which nowadays I think oversees Apple Global Events. So it's, it's incredible, incredible. Huh? All-star all cats. All-star cats, right? Within the branding spectrum in global 
companies nowadays, right? Back yeah. then, they're all running Nike. Uh, um, so we're there, whatever, hanging. One of them asked me, what do I think of how Nike is approaching Brazil in regards of marketing? Now, I could be problematic and just talking shit about it. But that's not my shit, right? Like, I was, no. So, first, I explained Brazil. Not Nike, but Brazil as a country, as one of the epicenters, if not, of colonialism. Brazil, sad story, but it was the country that had the longest slavery system in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, again, sad story, fucked up story, but most Africans that came to the Americas were enslaved in Brazil. Last country to make abolition. So, you know, Brazil carries the legacy of colonialism. So I was first picturing that for them to understand when international brands come to Brazil, they get embedded in that and they hire the colonial elites. And that's horrible because the colonial elites, they don't even want to be Brazilians. They want to be either European or American. Absolutely, yeah. So when they do marketing... They don't know what they're doing. They try to emulate some California lifestyle in Sao Paulo, which makes no sense because that's not what the Brazilian population in that vast diversity is or wants to be. Now now it looks like like a Fast and Furious movie or like all what Hollywood glammed up and it's not really the cultural aspect of what you're trying to find. It's totally disconnected. So... I'm not trying to again be Shit negative or whatever. But you're being you're being honest. I'm being honest. And one of the cats is like, bro, I've been coming here for 17 years. I never heard anyone say something like that. That's very important. But then I'm th- I'm 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 talking the opportunities like what's going on within the Brazilian youth. I was like, yo guys, soccer and body funk music genre makes Nike in this country. Yeah. You guys tap into soccer, not greatly, but you do. But Bali yeah. Funk, when it comes to consumption of especially sneaker culture, we all respect to hip-hop, but here's not about hip-hop, it's about Bali Funk. And I'm talking about the case, the case study of the Nike shocks in yeah. Brazil, how it happened, how it disrupted the glamorous of having a gun to now carrying a sneaker in your feet. Yeah. And now you're the, you're the star in the hood because you have a Nike exactly. shocks instead of a fucking AK-47. Bro, that's a change in society that Nike is not perceiving it. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yo, take that's a that's make, the story. That's the story. That's that's your brand in this country. But you can't get no that Ricardo Tishi. You can't get that from not up there. We all respect not Kanye West or Jay Z. Yeah. Like walking the streets of this country, do people know of Kanye West? Maybe. Do people know three songs of Kanye West? No, they don't. Let's be yeah. honest. So, and not because Brazil is disconnected. It's just not their culture. It's not our culture. Like any country in the world, <laughs> maybe in Europe, maybe, yeah. you know, parts of Japan. But let's be honest. And, and again, people, yeah, people know who is yeah. Kanye West, but are they really listening? If you look at the spectrum of Brazilian culture and, and, and the youth, well, no, man. So I was like, look, it's a different country. It's a different, you know. But the structural mindsets are here as well. Yeah. All right? American streetwear is American streetwear. Brazilian streetwear is not mm-hmm. American streetwear. And don't try to confuse the two. Don't do it, right? Like, it's fine. They adopted the shocks. Celebrate that. Don't, 
don't don't push the Air Force on because it doesn't make sense here. That's you know. So they were mesmerized. They were like, oh my god, wow, dope. Can you send us an email about that? And I was like, oh, I, I never thought of trying to get a job or whatever. I was managing artists. Eventually, that month, I signed a deal, and I'm managing now one of the biggest rappers of Brazil, this female rapper, Carol Conca. She's incredible. At that point, I'm having booked three tours already in Europe. We are moving to Paris. After 1999, now it's 2014. Back, yeah, I'm back in Paris. I'm going to be back in Paris. Money-wise, I'm... Great, but I no more five dollars and seventy cents. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but I send the email and I structure the email again from the conversation. Right in the first part, I put the picture of colonialism in Brazil, and that's you know why yeah. international brands do what they do and the mistakes of Nike. But then when it comes to the opportunities, I framed it. Like, you know how you structure music with 16, like yeah, pop 16, music with 16 yeah. bars or whatever? It wasn't exactly 16 bars, if I cannot remember. It was some bars, per se. <laughs> yeah. And uh, people, I, I don't write music. I'm not a musician. I'm not a rap. I'm not trying to be none, none of that. It's just I like to write. I come from a journalist family. So I structure the opportunity section of the email with the Nike ads. They were super famous. Um... Like the, the like the girls like if you allow me if you allow me to play sports if you if you let me play sports remember that with the yeah. little girls or yo is it the money shoe uh, is it the sh- uh, is it the shoe uh, is it the shoes money money yeah. is it the shoes, shoes. Uh, or Charles Barkley I'm not a role model no. mm-hmm. those ads um, what else but man Nike had some incredible ads in the eighties and nineties they right? did so each opportunity in Brazil. I see a straight alignment with each of these ads. And I'm just like, guys, that's your company. Those opportunities, you. Yeah. Just fucking do it. I know I don't want to be funny yeah, here. Yeah, just fucking do kinda it. Kind of cliche type yeah. of shit, but you know what I mean? At the end of the day, get the shit done. Like, yeah, you know, like, man up. Like, yeah. be, be yourself. Like, that's who you are anyways. And they loved it. They're like, man, this email is crazy. Thank you so much. We're not going to share with everybody, but they shared internally, whatever. All right. We ca- I kept in touch. I'm good at that. I yeah. kept in touch. And I'm touring with this artist in France, in Switzerland. Now we're going to Australia. And I'm always like, hey, guys, because they, they are global marketers. Yeah. So I, I'm sometimes I'm having drinks with them in Paris. One of them I'm meeting up in, in Sydney, Australia. Now they're like, yo, this cat, you know, he's... Pretty well traveled. Pretty well traveled. Really, really well connected. I'm having. I'm still having my apartment in LA. So often I'm in LA. They come to LA. I'm taking them to the clubs in LA, and all the DJs are like my friends. So they're like, "Yo, this guy is like on some crazy shit." 2015, I got a call. I think in January. Hey, I want to come to Portland. I want to have a conversation with you. Got a conversation with with, with this guy Simon Pastrich. Shout out to Simon. Been working closely lately. One of the dopest uh, marketers in the world. Crazy strategist. He was the VP of emerging markets back then. Simon was like, heard, saw the email. You, you crazy. <laughs> Introduced me to his team. Whatever. He eventually hired me for a consultation in Rio about running. 
What do I know about running? But it's not about running. It's about people. So, so you know people. I take the team to connect and interview runners all across town, not just the rich part of town, but every part of town, the middle class, the poor, whatever. We're in this neighborhood controlled by criminals, like all these kids with guns and shit, motorcycles. And that, that's, that was funny, right? Like, it's militias. They call militias, right? Yeah. The west side of Rio. We interviewed the runners, and clearly the runners are the nerds in the neighborhood that day, right? Yeah. But the kids with the motorcycles are watching us. They call me because they see I'm Brazilian. They're like, yo, what's going on here, bro? I interviewing them fucking nerds over there. I was like, oh, you know, I'm not saying Nike because yeah. I don't want to, you know. Make it hot. Yeah, but I'm like, oh, no, we work with sports or whatever. So they do sports. It's running, whatever. They're like, nah, bro, we, we, you got to interview us, man. You got to photograph us, whatever. So now I'm like, yo, you know, I'm like, I call the photographers like, yo, take a photo of them, please. Oh, yeah, take a, Take the photo. <laughs> take the photo. They obviously hide the guns, but yeah. we take these beautiful photos with kids with the motorcycles or whatever. But I'm like, right after, I was like, bro. Give me a number. I'm going to send you the, the photos, but I got to go back, man. I, sh- I focus now it's on the runners. And they're like, huh? you know. So we go back to the runners or whatever. The kids on the motorcycles stop passing by us. Like, how do you say when they put the motorcycle? Yeah, popping wheelies. Popping wheelies and shit. Whatever. Doing verts. Yeah. And not just to try to scare us. Not at all, but yeah. try to show off, right? And I called the Nike people there. I was like, that's the magic of your company. Today, in this neighborhood, the stars are not the criminals anymore. It's the runners. It sounds kind of corny, but, you know. The perception was, changes that day. That perception changed such as the Nike shocks in the hoods in Brazil changed from glamorizing guns to glamorizing people with the Nike shocks. So I was like, tap into that, bro. This is dope. Right? Anyways. That research became a strategy that I put it together for Nike and eventually for White and Kennedy. It became uh, kind of like the root of the campaign Nike did for the Olympics in Brazil back then. So I guess it was successful. Six months later, uh, got another call from Nike, from Simon. Yo, I, got, I have a job for you. And I wasn't really tripping on working for Nike because, again, I'm managing an artist. I'm traveling the world. The money was pretty much the same. But, you know, man, like, it's it's an opportunity that I was like, man, it's going to open my eyes for so many other shit. Marketing, you have the opportunity to not just work in music, but arts, dance, gastronomy, whatever. They hired me to direct, uh, you know, to oversee cultural marketing for the emerging markets, with the sharp focus in Brazil, Mexico, and South Korea. And I pretty much almost had to travel every two weeks to Brazil, South Korea, and Mexico. And this is and this is a kid from Rio. Yeah. The poor corn machine kid. The ghetto corn. <laughs> ghetto corn kid. Five, $5.75 or so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so. So then it, it leads you here. Leads me here. Well, so I did one year. I was supposed to be like kind of an IK. You kind of do like almost three years in those jobs or whatever. But I'm doing the job in the beginning. I don't know. They speaking gibberish to me. I, I I think it's a huge problem in marketing at agencies and brands. They speak marketing language, and they think they're so cool. But that's a problem, people. If you work in marketing, that's a problem because the consumers, meaning the streets. 
they don't speak that language. They speak people. They speak people. So when you speak those languages and you put into the campaigns or whatever, your strategies, it doesn't work because people don't speak that. So that was a problem. And honestly, I wasn't understanding. I don't come from that background. Yeah. So I was like, what the fuck? Eventually, you know, I, I'm not dumb. I, I, I got up with the program. Um, and I did me, bro. Like, instead of really following the, the rules or whatever, I, I mean, I delivered what I had to deliver in yeah. regards of like. But you did it your way. Putting strategy and briefing the teams in South Korea, Brazil, and, and, and Mexico for the, back then, the Nike Lab. I was overseeing yeah. the Nike Lab situation. So we had the collaborations with Roger Federer, with Ricardo Tishi, with uh, Kim. Um, Kim Jones. Kim Jones, thank you. Um, you know what I mean? But again, it's like, it's like Kim Jones, for example. Respect to him or whatever. Especially back then, was he relevant in the streets? Is the, him creating, is his demographic creating the, the branding of Nike that makes the world all about Nike? No. So, even I'm even not now, saying that Nike yeah. shouldn't work with Kim Jones. I'm not saying that, but, you know... I'm saying that Nike probably should be having focus in the kids in the hoods of Brazil creating the Nike shocks waves for 20 years, making one of the world cases of, of, of sneaker success. Yeah. Prioritizing that on top of King Jones. And sure, eventually work with King Jones. But So I, I'm, I'm briefing the teams to work on these on this campaigns or whatever, but at the same time, I'm traveling myself to South Korea, Brazil, Mexico, and seeing these opportunities that the brand is not tapping to and bringing to the company. I'm like, guys, this is happening in South Korea. Like in South Korea especially, I did a crazy body of insights and strategy that eventually reshaped their cultural approach of the South Korea office in regards of working with G-Dragon, shout out to KB Lee, uh, working with Jay Park, shout out to Ashley Choi, um, Scott King from BPR, um, PR, uh, PRRC running crew, shout out to DJ Soulscape and Little Mean. You know, I mean, incredible creative people, bro. Uh, Megan Kim, you know, I mean, shout out to the ESA brothers. I was with Kevin Kim yesterday from ESA, had the chance to, to, to sponsor their shows in New York Fashion Week many times. So, you know, like, especially in South Korea, which is a country, obviously, I don't speak Korean, bro. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I yeah. like it. They teach you if you want to, yeah, and whatever. But I didn't, have, you know, I, back then. So, um, it's just like immersing myself. I wasn't reporting to the local office, I wasn't going to the source, I wasn't interested on that. Nothing against the local office, yeah, but, but that's not with the I enrolled myself in classes at Hong Kong University there in South Korea. I don't speak Korean, brother. I was at the classes, they speak in Korea. I don't know what's going on in the classes, but I'm watching the dynamics between the students and the professors, between the girls and the boys, at the break times, eating with the students, hanging with the students after classes in the clubs or in the bars, or especially the coffee shops, they love coffee shops. I'm not just thriving within the cool, creative, hip scene. Of, so I'm doing that as well. But I'm also meeting... Firefighters, cops. Uh, you're, you're gathering information because you culture doesn't look in one aspect. I think, I think I think that's what mostly happens sometimes, where people perceive this one thing as this one entity, not knowing that it all is intertwined like an ecosystem. One hundred. So yeah, exactly. Like um, 
And not just because I'm some anthropological study or because it's the job. No, it's because that's what I like. So I'm hanging with, again, nine to five people, marketing people, <coughs> K-pop folks, managers, artists, sorry, models, whatever. With, with the society of, uh, of soul at large. And with that, I came up with a body of insights and a strategy to really reshape culturally, not sports, but culturally, how Nike is approaching South Korea and the world because South Korea is one of the most influential countries to the world. So I think, now, now fast forward a little bit fa faster. You said 2015. I think I meet you 2017. So I got promoted to New York 2017. And I think I met you at was that that the off? I think it was at the off white uh, yes, event space in downtown and downtown. Right. I think this was maybe what a year before you started working with Be True. No, or was that before after? That was a bit after. That is Fashion Week. No, yeah. is, that, is that Fashion Week? I want to say that's before Fashion Week. Maybe August. Yeah. All right. So that's August. Uh, Be True is June. So. Nike promoted me to to New York, um, January 2017, to oversee cultural marketing, which back then they called energy marketing. I think mistakenly they reshaped the name back then to influencer marketing. Uh, whoever's listening to to this this influencer approach is wrong. <laughs> uh, it's much deeper than that. I'm not saying. People don't create influence. People do create influence, and that's fantastic. Cities create influence. Countries create influence. Many things generate influence. Not just the numbers that you see on your phone. Right. But the approach of brands have been horrible because it's treating um, uh, um, cause and consequence in, in, in actually the opposite ways. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, it, 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 it's kind of funny. So, I, I think Nike made a mistake to call influencer marketing. I think nowadays they call it something else. But back then it was energy marketing, eventually influencer marketing. So, I got briefed for Be True in April, whatever. Nike wanted me to market. It was the first time marketing Be True, which is the approach that Nike does for the LGBTQ community. That was a time that the brands in the world was starting to have this approach to uh, LGBTQ plus, yeah. Also, the black communities, they, they quoted the oppressed communities across the world. Women, mm -hmm. blacks, communities, native communities, Latin American communities, uh, LGBTQ. To be honest, I got to be honest, I don't know how uh, real brands wants to be within mm -hmm. these causes, to be honest. I don't, you know, but yeah, they're using that, right? They're taking the opportunity. So, Nike briefed me to 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 do that, but they wanted me to uh, market Rainbow product. And I was like, no, that's fucked up. One, y'all never really connected with this community. It's one of the most uh, important communities in the world, most, you know, in may, not just for Nike, in many reasons and whatever. Many reasons. But besides that, you know, it's definitely impressed, and you, you, you never really acknowledge them, celebrated them, whatever. Now you're going to celebrate them through Rainbow product like every other brand. The product was dope, though. The product was cool, but it doesn't tell the story. 
No, and it's not respectful. You're just pretty it's much appropriating and you're just capitalizing yeah. on the community. So I was like, no, nah, uh-uh. Let's actually, the product's cool, you know, whatever, but... We, let's tell a story. We, we'll do some retail situation, but let's connect with the community and co-create, truly co-create a campaign with this community. I was overseeing culture, so culturally, what, what this community creates in New York City? Ballroom, Vogue. You know, I mean, it's one of the many cultures that they, these communities at large, because communities extremely diverse, have been living in New York City. So I created a campaign, uh, you know, tap into ballroom. Uh, we work with Leomi Maldonado, one of the m- most iconic dancer, you know, I mean, in the world, phenomenal person. So, um, we told pretty much her story, um, spoken by one of her best friends, Precious, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Which is a commentator within the ballroom scene and one of the most creative and, uh, and, and, and dopest MCs I ever met in my life. Directed by Daisy Zhu, which is an incredible video director. Uh, and it was just magic, man. Like, uh, I, I, I don't, you know, I didn't work at any agencies. I thought working with agencies was kind of like mediocre, to be honest. So I went straight up to connecting uh, to the dancers, to the scene. Shout out to Robert Cordero, incredible journalist that, that also helped me within those connections. And, um, yeah, man, we made that video and that brief video broke all the records back then. I remember um, my homegirl, who's, who's a stylist, um, and she's a part of the LGBTQ plus community, and she saw it, and she was like, yo, who did this? She was like, just telling that story and telling it right and not missing any moments and shedding a light on not just what people pertain it to be in June when it comes to pride, but what story is there from a cultural reference and how it bleeds into everything else that we call culture. Right. And I think those are that's one of those things that you've always been able to tap into is storytelling and how to connect people and how to connect that to tell it the right way. Even from sitting here, like just your whole story has always been very detailed moment to moment, <laughs> process to process. Yeah. And I think that's that something that a lot of people kind of miss out yeah. on the opportunity to really build and how to communicate that through working. Like and and in and, and the unconventional stuff of why keeping relationships is important. 100. People people always forget and, and I think it's in New York it's kinda like it's not done on purpose. I think we have we meet too many people in New York that we don't get to foster relationships the way we should. Mm, it's a little superficial. It's almost superficial. Uh, yeah. Like it's just like it's it's information. It's people overload. No, I got it. Yeah, I got it. I got that. But at the same time, I think New York it's a very deep city culturally, and people are very um, people. I don't want to create the animosity between New York and LA. I'm not yeah, saying that. Of course please, not. no. But um, yeah, people in New York, I think, uh, 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 you know, it can be very deep. And, and, and we get so much. We get so focused in the hustle and bustle. Sure, sure. Where yeah, like meeting true. people is 
you create genuine connections, but you don't foster those connections as well as you should have. Whereas in LA, like when I was in LA, I feel like you meet people, but you yeah, don't never, time, right? but you never know if it's genuine. Like in New York, you know it's genuine. Yeah, it's genuine. That's what I'm trying to say. It's genuine in New York, but you don't have time to watch it blossom. Right. Like that that conversation in the moment is a hundred and ten percent genuine. Right. It's just you don't have another conversation. Like there's plenty of numbers in my phone that I've met and had great conversations with, and. I'm like, damn, like, it is what it was. Like, we had that moment. Like, I tried to call a kid named Miguel in my phone and called another Miguel. And I was like, oh, yo, Miguel, shit. how are you? And he's like, yo, Rob, what the fuck you been? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, but I called the wrong Miguel. Holler at me. So it's like, oh, <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> but in New York, that shit happens. Right, right, right. That happened to me once. <laughs> so, you know, I think you, you've had a, throughout this story, I think you've, been one of the few people to know how to keep those connections going yeah. and moving forward. So now you fast forward to 2021. Where are you now? So after 2017, so after three years in Nike New York, again doing all the cultural marketing here, be true, Nigeria, a lot, a lot, a lot of connections and work with the Korean communities here in New York City, Puerto Rican, West Indian communities. All the downtown kids driving, um, especially to be honest, I know Soho is big for a lot of people, but I was very driven by the east side. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but again, like, you know, all, and not just immigrant communities, it's more like cultural mindsets. And, 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 and you know, Do, beside, after doing all of that, um, bringing crazy opportunities for Nike, establishing the relationship of Nike and J Balvin, which eventually became the collaboration with Jordan. The yeah. Jordan one sneakers, um, obviously with the ballroom scene with Naomi as an example, with Ingrid Silva, the ballerina from Harlem. Um, what else? Accounting relationships with Dapper Dan, McLean Thomas, Derek, mm. Ad- Derek Adams. You know, so you know, taking that that their approach instead of like chasing followers on Instagram or whatever. In 2019, I knew that I know I I don't come from the background, neither um you know like corporate jobs or whatever. So I needed to free myself from the environment of being in the office often, bunch of meetings, whatever. I wanted to be free to be more creative and have the opportunities to work even with other brands, with other artists, with you know. So I quit. Um, by end of 2019, I quit, but they asked me to stay until January. So January 2020 is my t- final time at Nike. I go back to Paris <laughs> to work with this incredible designer, Stephen Cortazar, which is actually now in New York uh, for the season, working with the New York City Ballet. Sure, it's going to be incredible. If Anyone that has the opportunity to go to the openings of the New York City Ballet design uh, with the clothing design by Stephen Cortazar, y'all should. It's going to be beautiful. So I'm working with Stephen in Paris, um, January. Then I go to Miami to see Balvin and the whole reggaeton crew with Jay Cortez, Jay Cortez and DJ Pope and all of them. So I'm doing well. I open my agency. It's pretty much like a creative studio that intermingles Brand marketing within the strategy, research, and implementation, and and, and um, conceptualizing campaigns. 
but also cultural production work such as like putting together art shows, dance performances, music production, whatever. So blending both together and also blending both things that I've done in my life. So I'm doing that from working with fashion in Paris to reggaeton in Miami. I come to New York, city got shut down. <coughs> Funny enough, throughout 2020, my main client was Nike. From working with Be True to some of the Puerto Rican strategy uh, for the back then the Air Force One, um, to even working with strategy within the Latino communities across uh, for Nike, whatever. Then I go to Brazil. Was you know during this pandemic time it was uh, you know it could be some people say it was depressive or whatever. So winter was coming. I was you know I needed to reconnect with my family, with my country, whatever. Went to Brazil for for a few months. Stayed there for a few in my city. Came back and now I've been running the agency and working with, with great clients again. Working with with um, you know often with Nike, often with Adidas as well actually. Uh, working with Spotify, um, having conversations with with other brands, and and not just those big global brands, but also I'm very curious and very interesting in working with you know like we have J Tips over here is like killing it yeah. with the whole hats and the whole streetwear game. So you know, I mean, yeah. What would you tell? Do you think the ten year old you? knew that you were going to be you when you grew up. No, but that's the beauty of it. Like, I mean, look, some people know, and that's dope. Some people are like, oh, I'm going to be a teacher. I <laughs> yeah. know people that, yo, they know they're going to be a teacher. Or I'm going to be a singer. They know they have that talent. <clears throat> I, I think people have many talents, right? But some people know. What and, they want to do, yeah. And they, and they go for it, and they become that, and they're successful and happy, and that's beautiful. I knew I had different talents. I often, and even today, sometimes I'm like, do I want to do that to the end of my life? Or like, do I want to just, you know? Um, I think the beauty of it was kind of like, not go with the flow, never that, like always lead, but, but like, hey, now I'm like, my talent, it's driving me to this path and I'm going. I'm going to learn so much from it. But eventually, as you grow to a certain stage, you're like, okay, but now I want to go to this other path. Use what you learn mm-hmm. and take it to this other path. And, and, and that's how my life has been. If you look at it from dropping out of high school to DJing the radio to eventually work with funk in the crazy environment in Rio... To them, Paris, then Paris, then, then the United States, and working in restaurants in the whole immigrant situation, then working with music artists, bookings, and all the hustle in the music industry, to then working one of the biggest corporations in the world in marketing, to now own an agency and being successful doing all these gigs or whatever. How many of my counterparts and I can shout out to all of them, the, the, the loved ones and you know the other yeah. ones. But a lot of the ones that are looking at me are like, how's this Brazilian guy with an accent <laughs> is overseeing culture in New York City? And I, I got it. A lot of them didn't trust me. Like, not me personally, but like, how this guy the has idea, that yeah. job. And now look at me like, and, and, and that's dope what I'm doing now. But 
it's more to come. Yeah. You know, and not in a capitalistic way, like, oh, I want to be more. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, and that's cool. If, <laughs> that's yo, what you want. I'm yeah. not hating on money. Keep coming, baby. But it's not about the end goal, right? It's about the journey. My journey has been so beautiful. It's about the, for me, it's about the journey, bro. I think it's always about the journey. Yeah. Um. Absolutely. For me as well. I mean, I I think, like I always tell people when uh when my mom would go to parent teacher conferences and be like Rob is such a talkative kid, I wish we would have known that like years from now would be sitting talking to people. Yeah. And that's what I would want right. to do. So you know, I think life has a way of revealing itself. I always say, um, if you want to make God laugh, show him your plan. And most of the time, your plan is not what you think it is. So. Yeah, it's like curiosity. Get out of your comfort zone. I know it sounds cliche, but get out of your comfort zone. Curiosity. Respect. So important. Respect. Right? Have respect. Like go to different communities, different cultural mindsets, different countries, cities, neighborhoods, whatever. Here I am. I live in Crown Heights in, the Bro- in Brooklyn. I'm taking almost a two-hour train ride to come here. To the Bronx, having respect to the Bronx, right? Yeah, like, know how to how to get in, how to get out. That <laughs> that's yeah, that that's and very know, much and true. know not only that but how to keep the invitations open, open, right? And and eventually maybe even be part of the uh, 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 of uh, that process of the process of the crew of the family, whatever. I think that's so important to me. And again, not go to things with these anthropological goals or work. Oh, this is going to turn into a work opportunity. Yeah. No. Because when you do that. People can feel it. People can feel it. And people are like, get the fuck out of here. And especially in some parts of the world, it, it can get dangerous, my friends. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you know, you just do it because you, you do for the love. You, I, I love Humanity, I love people, I love culture, I love to try different flavors, to get to know places, you know. <laughs> Again, my sound cliche, I don't know, but Anthony Bourdain was such a f- inspiration for me. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I met him once. I almost miss. I almost met him at that White Castle when he was up here. Right. Yeah, I met him at a party in... Um, um, Mission Chinese, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Mission. Yeah, yeah. The restaurant in, yeah. in downtown. With the orange, mm-hmm. with the orange on it, yeah. I forgot the name of it, yeah, but yeah. I, I, I met him over there and chapped up for like a quick minute. He lo- I loved Brazil. He was a jiu-jitsu fighter. Um, so talk a little about that. Uh, he was a great guy. He was it felt to me a, a little shy. I was very hurt when, when he passed. and uh, I think he's still alive. I think a lot of people are still alive. <laughs> Through the legacy that they leave, through music, or in his case, through communication. Yeah. Right? So, things like that, or people like that are very inspiring to me. And yeah, the journey is why why it drives me. Not the end goal, because it's never an end goal. Thank you, Ruta, for for coming here, man. I appreciate Uh, it. Thank you, bro. Um, This this was great. Like, as as you said, I think if one thing we've learned is that... um, you never know where the road takes you, but you know you can always pick the car that you drive. No, oh, yeah, yeah, you you should lead, right? You never, you know, oh, go with the flow, whatever. No, then you know. Know where you're going. Yeah, but know where you're going. Yeah. 
Thank you, Ruta, for showing up, man. I appreciate it. Um, I guess you can let the people know. I know get like where they can find you. I know you're always like behind the scenes, but I know you do have an Instagram, so you can okay. let the people know your Instagram. So I'm gonna spell it because my name and last name. My Instagram is R U D as a dog A H R I B as a boy E I R O Ruda Ribeiro. Uh, I think that's all the the handles on all my social media. So yeah, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever Instagrams they want to use the most. Um, and my agency name is Goma G O M A. Website is G O M A dot C O, not C O M C O. So Goma C O. Uh, thank you all. Thank you, Rob. No doubt, man. Thank you. Incredible. Yeah. You know what this is? Live from the Stoop Podcast, Robbie Digital. Until next time, guys, sit back, relax, and always enjoy the show. Later.